You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. So as for giveaways, we just wrapped up the giveaway for Caesar's Lord by Brian Litvin. Um, go ahead and keep an eye on your emails. Those of you who entered that current running giveaway is The Blackout Book Club by Amy Lynn Green. So if you're interested in entering those giveaways, just go to our website, historicalbookworm.com. Click on the giveaways tab and you will find the information there. In today's episode, we talk with Tessa Afshar about her latest release, A Hidden Prince. Our special guest for The Pinch of the Past, Michelle Greep, presents different methods of Victorian travel. And our bookworm review features The Lost Melody by Joanna Davidson Politano. Our guest today is an award-winning author of historical and biblical fiction. She was born to a nominally Muslim family in the Middle East and lived there for the first 14 years of her life. She then moved to England, where she survived boarding school for girls before moving to the United States permanently. Her conversion to Christianity in her 20s changed the course of her life forever. She holds a master's in divinity from Yale University, where she served as co-chair of the Evangelical Fellowship at the Divinity School. This author speaks regularly at national women's events and is a devoted wife, mediocre tomato grower, and chocolate connoisseur. Tessa Afshar, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. It's so much fun to be with you both. And your listeners. We're so glad to have you back. To start off with something fun, did you have any cool experiences this summer that you could share with us? Probably the coolest thing that happened this summer was that we finally got to go and visit my mom. My mom and my sister and her family, they live in England. And so because of the pandemic, we hadn't been able to go and visit. We missed my mom's 80th birthday and it's really hard. So finally, we felt like we could go and without putting her in danger. So we went for a lovely visit. And at 80, she is a great driver. So she was driving us around and it was lovely to be together after so long. Oh, that's wonderful. And how long had it been since you'd been able to see your mom? It was over two years, but we had a, I think when you are separated for that long, obviously we talk every week and we see each other on FaceTime and all of that, but it's not the same as being together. So when you've been apart for so long, you just really treasure every minute of being together. You make a good point. And I think that we can definitely count our blessings after a time of sort of separation and and being away from those who are so special to our hearts and our lives. I think what was really super fun for all of us was we had just the ordinary times of sitting around dinner and chatting but we also got to do some fun things we it was my first time punting on the river cam and my mom took me to a couple of places there's a city called saffron walden which is a historical city and it has one of those old english houses that you can you can just imagine so we went on a tour together so we had a lot of really fun mother-daughter experiences as well. How lovely. And especially getting to go to places that were 
historical, and you write primarily biblical fiction of all the historical time periods that you could write in this genre. Why did you choose this particular one? I think for me, I probably wouldn't call my writing biblical fiction. I think that was something that was bestowed upon me after I came out. I always felt like I was writing historical fiction in the time of the Bible, particularly a book like this. The Hidden Prince is it's written during the time of captivity in Babylon, but it's, it takes place in three cities. It takes place in Babylon and Ekbatana, which is part of media, and then in Persia in the city of Anshan. But I, for me, because the main two characters are not just fictional characters, it feels like a novel that happens to take place during biblical times. And yes, Daniel is a side character. He's a supported character who I really love his personality in this. But I feel like I'm writing a historical novel. It just happens to be during biblical times. And in answer to your question, why I chose this period, there are really two reasons. Predominantly, I, because of my own background, I have a lot of emotional investment in the Persian period. I love that it's in the Bible through several areas that you read, both in terms of prophecy and in terms of events that take place. So I wanted to look at the Persian period before it became great enough that you now hear about the kings in the Bible, like in Nehemiah or in Esther. But before we went there, we had some prophecies. So I'm trying to address some of that because those prophecies came during the time of captivity. The prophecies of hope were given during the worst time in the lives of these people. And so for me, it was really one of those moments where I thought, first of all, I'm going to have an extraordinary amount of funds researching for this book. But I also think we all of us need to receive messages of hope in the midst of dark times. Absolutely. And what a neat way to explore that with Christian fiction. I like that you're defining it as historical. I think that biblical fiction to me would be where the main character is Paul from the Bible or Peter or Esther and Rebecca. But biblical times just is huge. If you look at from creation onward, it's a huge time span. I, I agree with you, Kylie. Yeah, I have a few books where the main character is a biblical figure. And even with that, you could argue, yes, I'm trying to tell the backstory of these because obviously we don't know much, particularly in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, like one of the longest books that I had for my, on which my book was based is the story of Ruth. I have a book on Ruth that's four pages. And how do you write 350 pages based on four pages? So it, it is fiction at the end of the day. And I think some people feel uncomfortable saying biblical fiction. Like, how do you put those two together? It feels like they're, they don't make a very good marriage. And in some ways, I understand it. I think people who love fiction, like I do, I just, I'm a voracious reader. I'm a slow reader, but I'm a voracious reader of novels. I want that novel experience. I want that escape. I want the adventure. I want the romance. I want the things that I love in my novel. 
So if you were to tell me read biblical fiction, part of me would ask the question, is it going to read like a Bible study? Because that's not what I'm looking for. And that's not what I write. And I think on the other hand, people who are more conservative and they get very, and I would too, quite frankly, I, I never wanted that title because I feel like I don't want anyone messing with my Bible. <laughs> I don't want anyone making up things about my Bible. So I'm very careful when I write whether it's a main character who's, uh, who is from the Bible or there's just a support character who shows up once in a while. I'm very careful to remain faithful to the biblical account and to the biblical principles behind the account. It is such a cool period, and uh, I feel like there is very interesting archaeological research surrounding the time period, but... I don't know that it's necessarily as accessible. So bringing it into a novel gives us a chance to experience it. So I think that's really cool. Darcy, I totally agree with you. There's a lot of fun things that most people don't know. Even I didn't know. And I have already written a couple of books in this period. So I'm always discovering new things because there's so much. So it, it is a very interesting period in that most of us are not very familiar with it. Well, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us, or perhaps something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Well, this is my first interview because the novel is coming out in November. So I have a slew of podcasts. So anything I'm sharing with you is really the first time that I'm sharing anything. And I think for me, this story is about a woman who lost everything. And particularly for myself, we were coming from a period of loss. And still to some degree for me, there's that struggle in the back of my mind. I feel like life is never going to be exactly the same as it was. And I kind of miss certain things. I feel like that's those things are gone. So I wanted to write about a woman who has lost everything. And then at the end of that journey, or really, toward, this is more or less toward the beginning of the book, but at the end of that loss, when she feels like her world has been torn apart and her dreams are shattered, she actually finds that's where the open door to the beginning of her destiny lies. And that God has a lot of amazing plans for her life, but it wasn't until all of her dreams and all of her expectations shatter. And I think that's such a good biblical principle to remember that there are a lot of times at the end of the cross, there is a resurrection. At the end of broken dreams, we often find God inviting us into this incredible strength and incredible adventure. So this is a book that is very, it has a lot of adventure in it. And I think that I wanted to make up, like it's not a downer at the beginning, there's, there is this tragedy that happens, but most of the book is, it's based uh, to some degree on the histories of Herodotus. And th those of you who read history, you'll know that Herodotus being an ancient Greek historian, they don't understand history the way we do today particularly in the West, that their history is mixed up with myth. And so I, I just took this thread from Herodotus's history, part of which is history, part of which is just myth, and historians are still trying to figure out which is which. But I grafted this story into the biblical account and then 
into Herodotus' account, and then obviously Herodotus doesn't talk about Jewish characters, and I and my main characters are Jewish, and so I grafted them into this whole adventure. So it was really a lot of fun to write the story, and I think that my readers are going to have hopefully that experience of fun uh, of adventure of trying to run away from a bunch of really bad guys and finding safety for a little boy that they are trying to protect. That does sound like a good adventure. And uh, reading about the book and whatnot, I liked the main characters that you're showing here. They seem really interesting. And just having a little taste of the historical research you did just makes me even more curious. I have the back cover copy here, so I'll go ahead and read that. Uh, From the best-selling author of Jewel of the Nile comes the thrilling tale of a woman who feels she has no future but soon discovers the fate of the nations may rest in her hands. Beloved daughter of Jewish captives in Babylon, Karen is sold into Daniel's household to help his family survive. She becomes Daniel's most trusted scribe while taking lessons and swordsmanship training alongside Daniel's sons and their best friend, Jared. But after a tragic accident changes the course of her life, Karen finds herself in a foreign country charged with a mysterious task, teaching a shepherd boy how to become a lord. When she overhears whispers that hint at his true identity, she realizes she must protect him from the schemes of a bloodthirsty king. Jared cannot forgive Karen. Still, he finds himself traveling over the mountains to fetch her back to the safety of home. When he discovers the secret identity of Karen's pupil, Jared knows he must help protect him. Love battles bitterness as they flee from the king's agents, trying to save the boy who could one day deliver their people from captivity. Well done. And I love that this story so intertwines the real-life Israelite history with these fascinating characters. You've already shared a little bit, but could you kind of go a little deeper into what inspired this story? Thank you, Kylie. Yeah, I think that essentially it was this combination of like very deep loss and tragedy and our own mistakes and the conclusions that we arrive after things like that happen in our lives versus how God is sometimes intent on using those changes in our lives, not causing them, but using them and placing us precisely where we were meant to be from the beginning, placing us in order to use us for his kingdom in the most important way that we can't even begin to imagine. So this is really a book about the fulfilling of our destinies. It's also a book about the whatever of God. At one point, the male character goes through this very difficult situation and the, and Daniel asks him, at what point are you going to say, this is too much God? At what point are you going to say, you've gone too far God? Or are you going to get to a point in your life where you can say, whatever you allow, you're still my God? And so he's pursuing that whatever of God, whatever you allow. And he has to do that one step at a time while overcoming this difficult challenge in his life. And for me, that was also another really important thing because I have a whatever in my life. For the past couple of years, I've had 
some chronic issues with migraines and IBS, which are like this neurological, neurologically connected issue that I have had. And because of its chronic nature, I have to keep turning to God and say, whatever, whatever you allow, whatever I feel right now, whatever is going on, you are God and I trust you. I think there's no deeper faith builder than being able to do that continuously, to say to Jesus, whatever you allow. This is an Old Testament story, obviously, from the time of captivity. But the spirit of Jesus and that grace and that that way that he invites us to be in relationship with God is obviously in there because it's written by a Christian and not by a Jewish person. So I love those themes. Just It's a heavy theme, but it's also, like you say, so empowering when you are able to say, okay, whatever you say, God, whatever you're going to allow, I'm going to trust you. Because God's plans are so much more beautiful than ours. We look at pain and disaster and trials and all we can see is ruin. But he looks at it and he says, no, I didn't cause this because he doesn't cause destruction. But he says, I'm going to take this destruction and build something beautiful out of it. You just have to trust me. I promise you this will turn out for something good, something worthwhile, something purposeful. And I just think there's so much hope in a message like that, because it can be so easy to look at the pain and just see darkness. But God is big enough and wonderful enough and gracious enough to bring light out of that if we will trust him. And like you mentioned, a chronic illness, yeah, that it's not just a one-time thing. So that's a huge faith builder. Yeah, that reminds me what you were saying, Tessa. It reminds me about the song, Even If by Mercy Me, where it says, I know you're able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand, but even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. And Oh man, that is so hard to say sometimes. The Bible tells us the end, the end of our story and our hope is with God. And oh, it's hard. I'm glad we have stories like yours too and songs like that, even if by Mercy Me to remind us that, you know, that there is hope. Yeah, Kylie, funnily enough, that song is based on the same verse that my even if is based on because it's the Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who are going through the fire and they say, my, our, my God will save me from this, but even if he doesn't. And so it's the same, it's the same concept of my, I use the word wh- whatever for me, but it, I think in the book, it's actually even it. It's, so you nailed it, Kylie, actually. And I have to say, obviously, we're talking about the deeper themes of the book. The book itself has a lot of light moments. I have a 10-year-old with a ter- great sense of humor. He's, he just brings in a lot of laughter through the novel. So It's that balance of you have the serious themes, you have the deeper things because we all do, but there's also a lot of light and laughter and just moments of humor because I feel like we're going through a season where we need that lighter side as well just to get through it. We need the deeper promises, but we also need the lighter side. Absolutely. And that's also how life is. We, the light stuff and the heavy stuff sometimes get jumbled up awfully close together. And I think that's God's way of giving us grace. We don't get everything all at once. Exactly. So an interesting thing is that Karen was a scribe and also that she trains with swords in the story. Is that normal for a woman at that day and age? Or was it something special about her position? I think that's a great question. Let me kind of 
address both things. So first of all, her being a scribe. In fact, we do have historical historical evidence to show us that women at this time, not many, but there were some who were trained to be scribes and were used as scribes. Often, they were people who were in the higher echelons of society. So in Mesopotamia, they were definitely female scribes. So it is definitely a historical thing. In fact, I'm so utterly enchanted by this idea of 3,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago, more, more accurately, there are women who were scribes that I have two female scribes in my books. And the first one that I wrote about, she's a very different character from this one. But at the same time, I just love the idea that so long ago, women were, even though not commonly, but they were able to access that kind of training and that kind of... The second aspect was that she also receives training in swordcraft and also some archery and things like that. In the Persian society at this time, women were allowed to get that, particularly women in the higher society, in the higher echelons of society. Again, they went hunting. If they wanted to learn archery, they did. That's not as common or really common in Mesopotamia or with someone like a Jewish captive. However, I felt like I could write it into the story just because in the context, she's already unusual enough. She's receiving scribal training with boys. So all her mates are boys, essentially. And so she, so they welcome her. And because she's had brothers, she's had a little bit of training. And then they just welcome her into their own training. And that's how she gets into it. So even though it's not historically accurate for Jews necessarily, I felt like the context of the story made it a possibility. Yeah. And that's a really exciting idea. And I just love that it was possible. Sometimes looking back at history and women's role in history can be really saddening. And it's just awesome to know that, you know, 2,500 years ago, that it was possible for a woman to be in the position of a scribe. And it's not so outlandish that she would be trained for combat as well. So very cool. And I love that. I think, I hope that she'll be even more relationable to the modern woman because of those things that she's doing. Because we do admire, we do want to admire a character that we're reading about and connecting with. And what is one thing you hope your readers will take away from this story? Yeah, I think we talked about it through the, through our conversation, through our earlier conversation. I feel like I want those people who are going through a hard time and are maybe looking at their lives and they feel like there's too much loss or I'm too big of a failure. I want them to know that is a big lie and that at the very end of that closed door, they might just discover there's an open door to their true destiny. I want people who are going through a chronic issue, whether it's physical or emotional, mental health issue, whatever, I want them to be able to get to that place of even if, Lord, even if, and enter into that depth of faith, that maturity of faith. I also want people just to take away a few hours of unencumbered fun, laughter, escape into a different world, 
and see someone in bigger trouble than they are escape that bigger trouble. You know what I mean? And sort of that, that alone for me in fiction, I just love it when the hero or heroine is going through worse stuff than I am in terms of being in trouble or being pursued by bad guys and has to be clever enough to figure out a way to escape. So it, th- there's hope in that as well, that there's always a way to be clever enough with God to escape from trouble. Yes. And it helps put our lives in perspective sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so what kind of writerly things are you doing in the future? Books coming out? What's in the works? So uh, this book is coming out on November 8th, I think uh, technically is the release date. And I just finished the first draft, so I haven't worked on the edits yet, of the second book that's in this series. They're all standalone books because in this particular genre, you want to write standalones, but these are in the same world. So the next novel, that boy who was 10 and 11 in this novel is now in his 30s. He's And then, and again, he's still a support character, but the main characters in the next novel are the children of the main characters in this novel, which I'm giving something away. Sorry about that. But at least it has a happy ending. I just want everyone to know my books have a happy ending. Yes, yes. And how much fun to see like the next generation. It sounds like a really fun book. I'm liking just about Daniel and and then the little boy and the couple. You can have a lot of, I think, almost a family unit developing there in those friendships. So sounds like a great read. And for our listeners, Tessa has been so gracious to offer a copy of The Hidden Prince. To enter this giveaway, just go to our website, historicalbookworm.com. Go to the giveaways page, and I'll also have that link for you in the show notes. Now, Tessa, where can our listeners connect with you? Uh, I would love for them to go to tessaafshar.com, T-E-S-S-A-A-F-S-H-A-R.com. And they, they can sign up for my a complimentary monthly newsletter, which has a free devotional and a lot and free giveaways every month in often books, sometimes chocolates, different things like that, and includes news as well. Now for a pinch of the past. We have a special guest on our pinch of the past here today. Michelle Greep is joining us to chat about Victorian transportation. So Michelle, welcome. Thank you for having me. I would love to chat about Victorian transportation. Everyone knows about the carriage, but I know you're going to be talking about some other stuff too. So let's dive in. Okay. So when you think about Victorian transportation, you often think carriage, but then sometimes you get this image in your head of this crazy looking bicycle that has like the big front tire and the little tiny tire in the back. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's called a penny farthing. So here's, I can tell you a little bit about that. Surprisingly, they, the, these awkward looking bikes were actually pretty comfortable to ride because the large wheel in the front provides really good shock absorption, which is important oh, on London. Course. Yeah, super important when you're hitting those rutted roads and if it's missing a cobble or two. <laughs> but they were pretty popular in the 1870s and 1880s, and then quickly went out of fashion when more modern bicycles appeared that look like the ones we ride today. 
But I'm going to guess you might be wondering, why is it called a penny farthing? Yes, please tell us. (laughs) Okay. Well, I will do that. It comes from coins, actually. So a penny, believe it or not, back in the day was a much larger coin, way bigger than a farthing. So the large wheel in the front was called a penny and the rear a farthing. But during the time that they were popular, they were just called bicycles. But as I said, once they died out and the other bicycles came into play to avoid confusion when the new sleek models came out, the name was changed to high wheels or what we know as the penny farthing. So I've not ridden one, but they look fun. That makes so much sense that those old-fashioned things would get their own name, and they named them after the coins of their time, which it totally makes sense. We are always making up slang terms for things based on our culture. So that's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. It surprised me that the penny was the bigger of the coins. So go figure. Yeah. Because it's the opposite here in America. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the penny farthing. I am not a huge fan of heights, so I don't know that I would necessarily (laughs) climb up on one of those. (laughs) But neither would I want to ride a cliff railway. Think about that name. (laughs) It's like, whoa. This does not sound very good. It does not sound safe at all. (laughs) But um, not every city or town in England is as flat as London. So what are you going to do when you have a huge cliff that separates your high town from your low town, you're probably going to build a vertical railroad, right? So that's what they oh, did. Oh, of course. That makes that makes total sense. Total sense. Total sense. And they were called funiculars. Now, I don't know that I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's how it's spelled. So funiculars, which is a super fun name. And it comes from the Latin word funiculus, which means rope. And here's why. Here's why they call it that. So This, I'll try to give you an image in your head a little bit. So this sort of railway has two cars running on parallel tracks. So there's one car ascending while the other car is descending. Now, in order to do that, each car carried a huge tank of water underneath it because this this thing worked kind of like by a water balance system. So these two cars are attached to each other by hauling cables at the top and bottom of the tracks. And when these cars are docked, the full water tanks are in balance and ready for loading. And each one holds like 700 gallons. So they're whopping big. Yeah. Once passengers are loaded, the lower driver, the guy at the bottom of the hill, discharges water until the top car is heavier. And then when the top car's heavier, it simply just starts rolling down the rails, which then in turn pulls the bottom car upwards. So it's pretty, it's a pretty simple mechanism, but man, these things were steep. I do not think I would want to ride one of those. That is so cool though, just how they did that. Like I could make, that's got me thinking now and I'm like, how could I make that? Like with my, like a miniature scale model with like my kids or my second grade class. That would, that's really neat. That would be super fun. I wonder, yeah. <laughs> maybe Google it. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's yeah. an ingeniously simple design, but wow, that, that, that does sound effective. It makes me think of the railway in Chattanooga called the Incline Railway, which it didn't, yes. it didn't use that kind of propulsion, but it's pretty much straight up and down. The cars are actually built 
at an angle because, and the, the seats are on steps because of the way it rides up the hill. So it makes me think of that in, in the dramatic height difference. Yes. But yeah, but yeah I, what, a, what a cool design. I bet it's a lot like that. So yeah, so penny farthing, a funicular. And then last but not least, I wanted to talk a little bit about an omnibus which sounds like omni, like huge, you know, I get this big image of, I don't know, like a big centipede coming down the road. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not that drastic. An omnibus was actually a precursor to the trolley, first appeared in 1829. So you can think of these things as a large horse-drawn carriage that traveled along a set route, like a bus route, and it would pick up and drop off passengers. And so an omnibus was enclosed, an enclosed vehicle with four windows and was toted about by one or two horses. Passengers sat on benches lining each side, entering a door at the back, or they could climb up to sit on the exposed seats up top. Uh, the driver rode at the front of the carriage and there was a conductor that, at the back of the carriage that would assist and take fares from passengers at the rear. So this form of transportation was really popular amongst the middle class. Those with less funding couldn't afford the fare and upper classes either had their own carriage or would hire a hackney. So really the vehicle of choice for the middle. Personally, I would rather walk though than get a ticket for one of these because often passengers were crammed in shoulder to shoulder and this is before showers. No. <laughs> so I, I think I would pass. <laughs> the air is probably fresher on the sidewalk. Yeah. Or even if you rode up top. Yes. Now, riding up top would be probably pretty fun if that's your thing. But yeah, so this was like the precursor to the quintessential London double-decker bus, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So those are my three forms of Victorian transportation for you today. Hope you learned a little something. I know. I did. That <laughs> was really neat. Good. So... Where did you run into these different types of Victorian transportation? Yes. Were you well, researching? I was researching. I actually got to ride an omnibus in England. There's a Bliss Hill is a living history museum where it's like you enter back into the Victorian era. And so I got to ride on one and this one was not enclosed. So the smells were not quite as bad, <laughs> which was perfect for me. I have not ridden a, a penny farthing, but I have seen them and those front wheels are really big. And I did see one of the, the cliff railroads, railways, the cliff railways, but I did not ride it because I'm not a fan of heights. I took a picture. That was good enough for me. That'll do it. But yeah, I featured the on omnibus in my newest release, The Bride of Blackfriars Lane. I have my heroine, heroine get on the bus. And of course they get in a little fight because they're having a bit of a spat and end up getting kicked off the omnibus. So the, en <laughs> the engineer was not too happy with them. Oh dear. Yeah. I love it. So, yeah. So yeah, that's a little bit about Victorian transportation. And if you like reading about the Victorian era, you could pick up your copy of the Bride of Blackfriars Lane at a bookseller near you, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, really wherever. And you can find me online at michellegreep.com where I often will blog about different historical items. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Michelle. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to be here. Time for our bookworm review. 
The Lost Melody by Joanna Davidson Politano. When concert pianist Vivian Mordaunt's father dies, he leaves to her the care of an adult ward she knew nothing about. The woman is supposedly a patient at Hurstwell Asylum. The woman's portrait is shockingly familiar to Vivian, so when the asylum claims she was never a patient there, Vivian is compelled to discover what happened to the figure she remembers from childhood dreams. The longer she lingers in the deep shadows and forgotten towers at Hurstwell, the fuzzier the line between sanity and madness becomes. She hears music no one else does, receives strange missives, receives strange missives with rose petals between the pages, and untangles far more than is safe for her to know. But can she uncover the truth about the mysterious woman she seeks? And is there anyone at Hurstwell she can trust with her suspicions? Today's review is brought to you by Christy Kay of the Historical Bookworm Review Team. Politano creates another fantastic story with an undercurrent of foreboding, seemingly insurmountable obstacles, a forbidden romance, and a heroine who is determined to find her path through it all. Vivian, a woman besieged by the men in her life, must unravel the circumstances that led her to Hurstwell Asylum and discover the truth regarding a figure from her childhood who may be trapped there. She meets an interesting array of characters along the way who either propel or prevent her from obtaining the answers she desires. Perhaps the most surprising thing to Vivian is the way she begins to see the patients themselves and how the mysterious magic of music can be a balm to us all. Darcy, how are you doing this week? It's been a pretty good week. Um, I finished it off with a few hours at the beach this Saturday afternoon. Um, I built a sandcastle. I know I'm technically, I guess, too old for sandcastles, but they are my things, so I still build sandcastles. Oh, you're never too old to build sandcastles. You just perfect your method as you get older. (laughs) Exactly. And I am such a nerd because every beach has different sand and different parts of beaches have different sand and they behave differently. So some days you're not going to get as much detail. But anyway, like I said, bit of a nerd. Well, I saw the I saw the, the pictures that you posted on Instagram of your beautiful sandcastles and I was like, "Whoa, well done. You found uh there were like shells on these like parapets and all these neat things and the sand just looks so pretty compared to our sand up here in the Pacific Northwest. Ours is like super fine like and it looks kind of like mm, slate, I think. That, gray dark gray mm-hmm. so sounds like it would actually build a pretty decent sandcastle though oh yeah fine like oh that. yeah hard packed yeah mm-hmm. we can build some decent sandcastles up here but if you want to have a look at darcy's sandcastle you should check her out on instagram at darcy fournier writer yes well how has your week been kylie My week has been good. I finished up just teaching and then had Veterans Day off. The ACFW Virginia chapter had their Royal Writers Conference. It was online, but just really an incredible conference. There were two classes every hour, three breakout sessions. One was like faculty breakout session where you could just sit like chat on Zoom with the faculty and they had many, many faculty 
The other was genre specific and then networking and uh, the keynote. They had um, Karen Wittemeyer as the keynote. And oh, how fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm definitely going to go next year. Yeah, that's impressive. Uh, for an online conference, sounds like they had everything. Yeah, they really outdid themselves. So maybe next year you can come with me, Darcy. Yeah, next year I need to put that on my calendar. All right. Well, I hope you have a lovely weekend. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.